This podcast is brought to you by the Maryland State Library Agency. The MSLA podcast features presenters from statewide youth programs, as well as learning opportunities for library staff and resources for patrons of the Maryland State Library for the Blind and Print Disabled. Hi everyone, this is Ashley with the Maryland State Library for the Blind and Print Disabled, and I'm so excited that you're here with us again for another LBDD guest hour. Our guest today is Amanda Hughes. Amanda Hughes has been working in museums, archives, and libraries all across the country for over 10 years. Her current home is the Maryland Department at the Enoch Pratt Free Library, where she is the assistant manager. Amanda's special passions are women's histories and the personal stories of ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances. She reads incessantly and indiscriminately, but especially loves science fiction, graphic novels, and memoirs, usually all at the same time. In her very little spare time, she enjoys hiking, kayaking, baking, and knitting. She currently lives in Northeast Baltimore with her husband, two children, various pets, including three cats, two dogs, and a very grumpy bearded dragon. Oh my goodness, it sounds like you have a house full. We absolutely do. <laughs> Today's conversation is uh, one that's, it's not terrifying at all. I read the script and I was like, oh my goodness, but it's, it's perfect for that spooky season. So I'm gonna turn it over to you to get started. All right, well, thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful to be here with you. Um, this program is a part of a series of programs we do in the Maryland department each October called Dark Side of Maryland. We also have programs on Maryland ghost stories, magicians and mediums and true crime uh, and our witch trials here cap it all off. So I'm gonna be sharing with you some of the history of witches and witch trials in Maryland, as well as some of the many stories and folklore surrounding witches throughout the state. To research this program, I relied heavily on a few sources, namely William Cook's Witch Trials, Legends and Lore in Maryland, Francis Park's Witchcraft in Maryland, and Rebecca Logan's Witches and Poisoners in the Colonial Chesapeake. The indictments and verdicts you'll hear me read out today were all taken from the proceedings of the Council of Maryland and the proceedings of the Court of the Province of Maryland. All these resources are available in the Maryland Department if you wanted to do any further uh, research. And I do have one clarification. While the witch trials and laws we're looking at all take place during the colonial period, some of the stories do take place after the revolution. So it's not strictly colonial. But to get started, I wanna share a story with you. This particular witch is said to have lived in the forests of Frederick County. Around 1780 or so, a woman named Ellie Kedward was accused by her neighbors of being an evil witch who murdered several children with her dark arts. One bitter cold winter night, the villagers chased Ellie from her home, drove her into the woods, and after they caught her, tied her to a tree and left her to die. Exactly one year later, Every person who had hounded poor Ellie out of her home that night vanished, along with all of the town's children. The terrified survivors left, vowing never to return or speak the witch's name ever again. The story might have ended there, but in 1820, the town of Burkittsville, named for the major landowner, Henry Burkitt, was founded on the exact spot of the previous village. Unfortunately for the people of Burkittsville, Ellie's curse attached itself to the new settlement. Soon unexplained events began to occur, mysterious and gruesome murders, missing children and mutilated farm animals. 
Word of these strange happenings spread far and wide, striking fear in the hearts of the locals until in 1994, three student filmmakers entered the woods outside Burkittsville, intending to document or disprove the phenomena. They were never heard from again. All that was ever found of them was the footage they managed to record left behind with no trace of the vanished students. Now, if this story sounds familiar to some of you, well, it should. <laughs> it's the plot of the 1999 movie, The Blair Witch Project. Oh no, <laughs> you had me going there for a second. Yep, it is completely fiction. No such story was ever told in Frederick County until after the movie was released. In fact, the people who lived in Burkittsville were quite baffled to find that their town had overnight become a tourist destination for people wanting to encounter the Blair Witch. But that didn't stop them from capitalizing on their newfound fame. And today you can find lots of attractions and tours related to the Blair Witch. You know, as a society in the modern world, we love these spooky, eerie stories of spells and curses and witchcraft, but our colonial ancestors felt very, very differently. Attitudes towards witchcraft in Maryland go back to the European, especially the English roots of, of most of the settlers. Although laws against witchcraft and sorcery date all the way back to the Middle Ages, the height of witch hysteria in England came during the reign of King James I. He was extremely interested in the occult and believed black magic and sorcery were not only very real, but also a threat to his reign. When he was attempting to get married, his bride took four times trying to cross the English Channel because of bad weather, and he personally blamed witchcraft for the storms that endangered her life. He directly oversaw witch hunts as king of both Scotland and England, and even published a book about supernatural creatures called Demonology in 1599. The book described in great detail how demons trouble humans and how witches conduct their rituals. I guess we'll have to leave it to the imagination how King James knew all of this. <laughs> It's said that demonology was eventually the inspiration for much of the dialogue of the witches in Shakespeare's Macbeth. Many of the Weird Sisters lines are lifted directly from demonology. In this sort of societal atmosphere, that an act against conjuration, witchcraft, and dealing with evil and wicked spirits, commonly called the Witchcraft Act of 1604, was passed. This law classified witchcraft as a felony, which removed the cases from the ecclesiastical courts, the church courts, and moved them to the court of common law. It eliminated burning at the stake as a punishment, unless the accused was also found guilty of treason and specified hanging as the method of execution. This remained the law of the land in England until 1632, when James's son, Charles I, granted Cecil Calvert, second Baron of Baltimore, a charter for what would become the colony of the province of Maryland. In 1634, the first settlers arrived on an island they would name St. Clement's Island, and later that year, St. Mary's City was founded as the capital and remained the capital until it moved to Annapolis in 1695. In 1638, the Second Assembly of Maryland passed an act for felonies, laying out crimes that we considered a felony in the colony, which included witchcraft. This is the first time a specific law was passed in Maryland mentioning witchcraft. The Witchcraft Act of 1604 was amended in 1639 to classify all witchcraft as acts of treason punishable by burning. But the Maryland Assembly broke with this in 1642 when they passed an act for less capital offenses, which laid out 
basically tiers of offenses and how they could be punished. This included witchcraft and sorcery, which according to the act should be punished as near as may be to the laws of England as the court shall think the crime deserves. That line is important. It gives the judges more leeway in how they decide to punish offenders and they no longer have to stick to the letter of English law. So I know when we think of witch trials, we think of burning at the stake, but that was actually incredibly rare. Um, hanging was much more common. It was like really the Sanderson sisters in the Hocus Pocus movie, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> exactly, that's right. But you can also kind of see that not only did they want to avoid what they saw to be a really inhumane way of executing people, but also that people were starting to take witchcraft a little less seriously. By the 1700s, attitudes towards witchcraft had almost completely reversed themselves, at least as far as the law was concerned. The Age of Enlightenment had dawned, and the Witchcraft Act of 1735 was passed and superseded all previous laws. This was strikingly different from previous laws. It classified witchcraft and sorcery, sorcery as, quote, impossible crimes, and it compared them to fraud. It stipulated that those found guilty were essentially con artists and they should be fined and have to make restitution for all, any money they had cheated someone out of. So say you go have your palm read or have your tarot cards read and hey, I didn't find the love of my life or win the lottery. So then you can get your money back. <laughs> so in other words, the government no longer officially believed in witches. That does not mean, however, that superstitions among the people all went away and extrajudicial action was still occasionally a problem. We also have to make the distinction between a formal legal accusation of witchcraft and people pointing fingers at each other in their own communities. Even informal accusations were taken very seriously and often led to legal action of their own as many people who were accused by their neighbors would go on to sue the accusers for slander. In 1661, a widow called Joan Mitchell claimed in a court filing that several people from her church, including the minister, had publicly called her a witch and tormented her for years. And so she wished to sue them for slander. And indeed, if you look uh, prior in the record, there's an earlier court filing from 1659 from Thomas Mitchell accused a Mrs. Hatch of spreading rumors that his wife, Joan, was a witch. Nothing was done at the time since Mrs. Hatch was married to a high-ranking member of the governor's council, but clearly this had been going on for quite some time. When the slander case was heard, Joan was so determined to clear her good name, she offered before the court, and a quote, that she be searched by able women, whether I be such a creature as those persons say I am, and if a mark is found, may I be punished by law. In other words, she was offering to allow her body to be publicly searched by representatives of the court to see if she had a witch's mark. This tells you how seriously she took the allegation. She was willing to be publicly humiliated in order to clear her name. The minister in this case had previously formally accused another woman of witchcraft, and it's possible Joan was trying to head him off to do the same to her. They say the best defense is a good offense, and it must have worked, because although the slander charges were thrown out, the court declared that Joan Mitchell was a woman in good standing, and there are never any formal accusations against her. Another woman who got a bit of her own back after being accused was called Catherine Prout of Anne Arundel County. In 1702, a man called Charles Kilburn appeared before the court to formally accuse Catherine of witchcraft. 
claiming she had caused, quote, a languishing condition to come upon his body by her dark art. Catherine was called before the court to defend herself and was apparently not very happy about it. While the accusation was found to be without merit, Catherine was fined 100 pounds of tobacco, quote, for her misbehavior in her saucy language before the court. <laughs> I think I'd have been pretty saucy, too, if I got hauled in front of a judge to say I was a witch, witch or not. <laughs> and Kilburn wasn't off the hook either. He had to pay 1,101 pounds of tobacco to cover the court costs of his failed accusation. Catherine was not done yet, though. That same year, she sued a woman called Kate Quillian for slander, claiming Quillian had publicly called her a witch and accused her from stealing from the town's food stores. Catherine won that case and was awarded a judgment of three pounds sterling, which is roughly 530 pounds or $720 in today's money. Now, we've heard about accusations that didn't make it to trial. And how are those decisions made? Basically, they used a standard handbook. The person who would have decided if there was enough evidence to bring someone to trial for felonies, including witchcraft, were appointed officials known as justices of the peace. Now, they're slightly different than the justices of the peace we have now. They don't marry people, for one thing. In 1619, a barrister called Michael Dalton published a guidebook to English common law for justices of the peace and other officials titled The Country Justice. It stated that for any felony case to be held over for trial, there must be either two reputable witnesses or a confession along with some other evidence. But Dalton agreed that witnesses and evidence might be hard to come by for those accused of witchcraft. So he helpfully included a list of ways to know if someone was a witch. Some of the various methods include keeping a familiar, which might or might not have an abnormally large teat somewhere on its body. I really wanna know who had to search for that. Um, having figures made of clay or wax, using too much foul language, being too concerned with the condition of sick people, being a family member or servant of a convicted witch, being named by another witch, making a dead body bleed when it's touched, or having in your house very smelly books, bottles, or boxes. It's all just ironclad evidence, you know. Not everyone was content to fulfill these requirements before dealing with someone they suspected of witchcraft, though. As I said earlier, extrajudicial action was definitely a problem, as is the unfortunate case of Mary Lee, who never even made it to Maryland shore before falling victim to accusations. It was 1654, London was far behind, and the charity had plunged through the turbulent Atlantic for more than two months without reaching Maryland. Waves broke over her sides and crashed onto her decks, her canvas sail was in shreds and her lines were knotted uselessly around splintered spars. Her crew's initial fear had turned to despair. A storm lasting two months, a storm of this ferocity, it couldn't be natural, the sailors began to grumble. Slowly, their despair hardened into suspicion. It said it was the foretopmen who first dared to speak the words. There must be a witch aboard. Yes, the others cried, yes, a witch. A search, mates, we must find her before she's the doom of us all. The self-appointed witch finders, armed with holy amulets and charms, slipped from the forecastle and crept through the gloom to the charity's companionway, to the cabins. At the signal, the cabin doors were flung open and the lamps were lit. Passengers were searched. Until finally, here, men, I found her, one of the sailors shouted. The men flocked to the cabin of Mary Lee. 
The Reverend Francis Fitzherbert, who was aboard the charity, tells us what happened next. Forthwith, they seized the little woman whom they suspected of sorcery. After examining her with strictest scrutiny, they found some signal or mark of a witch upon her when she had answered to their satisfaction whether she be guilty or not guilty of the heinous sin, they removed her from the decks and hanged her from the mast. The corpse and whatever that belonged to her was cast into the sea. The storm abated and the charity sailed on to Maryland without poor Mary Lee. Upon arriving, two passengers, Henry Corbine and Francis Darby, provided testimony to the governor that the captain of the charity, John Bosworth, though he did not order or condone the killing of Mary Lee, was unable to stop his crew from executing her without risking mutiny and the safety of the vessel and passengers. I wish I could say that Mary Lee was the only person to fall victim to a sailor's superstitions, but unfortunately, that's not the case. In 1658, Elizabeth Richards was also accused of being a witch on a voyage to Maryland and hanged at sea by the crew. After the ship made port in St. Mary's City, another passenger filed a complaint with Josiah Fendall, the proprietary governor and lieutenant general of the province. John Washington, who happens to be the great, the great grandfather of George Washington, in 1659 filed the complaint against Edward Prescott the owner of the ship, accusing him of allowing his crew to murder Elizabeth. The complaint reads as follows. John Washington of Westmoreland County in Virginia hath made complaint against Edward Prescott, merchant, accusing said Prescott of felony, alleging how he said Prescott hanged a witch in his ship as he was outbound from England hither the last year, upon which the complaint of the same Washington, the governor caused the said Prescott to be arrested. The governor hath sent notice to said Washington of the proceedings. The letter sent to John Washington informed him that for the trial to go forward, he would have to appear in court as a witness. Many prosecutors will tell you the hardest part of a trial is often getting witnesses through the courthouse doors. That was the case here too. John Washington lived, lived in Westmoreland County on Virginia's Northern Neck, some 60 miles away from St. Mary's City. He received notice of the trial on September 29th with the trial set to take place on October 4th and 5th. That only five days was not enough time for him to arrange transport and make the journey. And he had a newborn son to christen. The trial went forward without its star witness. The court record reads, to which complaint of John Washington, the said Edward Prescott submitting himself to this trial, denieth not that there was one Elizabeth Richardson hanged in his ship as he was outward bound this last year from England and coming to this province, and that he had appointed one John Green as master of the voyage, though himself was both ship owner and merchant. Prescott further saith that he withstood the proceedings of his master and crew and protested against them in that business, and that thereupon both master and crew were ready to mutiny. As it appearing to the court customs house documents naming John Green as master of the voyage and not Edward Prescott, and no one coming to prosecute the said Prescott, therefore praise he may be acquitted. Whereupon proclamation was made by the sheriff, Edward Prescott, prisoner upon suspicion of felony, stand upon his acquittal if any person can give evidence against him, let him come in for the prisoner, otherwise will be acquitted. And no one appearing, the prisoner is acquitted by the board. So Edward Prescott was found not responsible for what happened on his ship because he was not actually the captain on the voyage. And because once again, it was claimed that the crew would mutiny if not allowed to act on their superstitions. 
There's no known record of anyone else ever being held accountable for the murder of Elizabeth Richards. Throughout the history of Maryland, a total of five people were officially tried for witchcraft. The first was a woman called Elizabeth Bennett, and in 1665, she was charged with witchcraft by a grand jury. Luckily for her, the attorney general refused to ask for an indictment, and she was acquitted by proclamation. In 1647, John Cowan was the next person to stand trial for sorcery. He was convicted and sentenced to be hanged. His friends in the lower house of assembly petitioned on his behalf for clemency. The upper house agreed, but with one stipulation. The court record reads, the condemned malefactor be reprieved and execution stayed, provided that the sheriff of St. Mary's County carry him to the gallows and that the rope being about his neck, it be made known to him that he is beholden to the assembly for clemency and shall remain in the city of St. Mary to be employed in such service as the governor shall think fit. We have no way of knowing if John Cowan knew ahead of time that he was to be pardoned but it still must have been a dramatic scene as he stood on the gallows with the noose around his neck when the sheriff suddenly yelled, stop. We should also note that he did not get off completely free. He was required to stay in St. Mary's as an indentured servant for an unknown amount of time. But being an indentured servant is better than being dead. The next trial took place in 1685. Rebecca Fowler has the sad distinction of being the only person ever executed for witchcraft in the province of Maryland. As best we can tell, in 1656, Rebecca Parrott, as she was first known, was transported to Maryland from England as punishment for unspecified crimes and made an indentured servant to the landowner, Henry Cox. We have no way to know what crime she was transported for. It may have been unpaid debts. She might simply have been in the wrong place at the wrong time. But in 1662, Rebecca married fellow indentured servant, John Fowler. As it was illegal for indentured servants to marry, this must have been after the terms of their indenture were ended. John became an apprentice to a shoemaker called George Collins, while Rebecca took a job as a paid domestic servant in Collins's household. Collins was apparently very fond of the couple, and he gifted their young son Richard 190 acres of land in 1673 and left John his supply of leather as well as his tanning equipment and tools in his will. It was during this time that Rebecca first encountered another indentured servant called Francis Sansbury, the man who would eventually accuse her of being a witch. In 1683, John and Rebecca were able to purchase land of their own in what is now Prince George's County, and they called it Fowler's Delight, but they were not destined to enjoy their delight for long. Just two years later, Sansbury testified to the court that Rebecca, having not the fear of God before her eyes, did use evil practice upon his body at various times to make him very much the worst, consumed, pined, and lamed against the peace and against statute. Rebecca, now a widow, was tried by the jury. The court record reads, Rebecca Fowler was brought to the bar and the jurors impaneled, tried and sworn to say the truth do say and deliver the verdict. We find Rebecca Fowler is guilty of the matters of the indictment against her. Make her guilty of witchcraft, charms, and sorceries. On the third day of October, 1685, Rebecca Fowler was again brought to the bar and the attorney general declared that Rebecca Fowler is to be hanged by the neck until dead, which was performed on the ninth day of October of that year. Now, unlike in Salem, the conviction of Rebecca Fowler did not touch off a wave of persecutions, as the next person to be tried for witchcraft on almost identical accusations 
had a much happier outcome. In 1686, Hannah Edwards, also a widow, was tried in St. Mary's City. Ruth Hutchinson was the primary accuser, testifying before the court that Hannah had, quote, having not the fear of God before her eyes, but being led by the instigation of the devil, certain evil and diabolical arts and witchcrafts, did use evil practice upon her body, very much the worst consumed, pined, and wasted against the peace and against statute. You'll notice that the language used to describe the damage that both Rebecca and Hannah were supposed to have done is almost identical. The only difference is Sansbury claims to have been lamed, which implies an injury, while Hutchinson claimed to have wasted, which implies an illness. Why then was Rebecca convicted and executed while Hannah was acquitted of all charges? We can only speculate why these two cases, which seem so similar, had such very different outcomes. Two of the jurors that served at Rebecca's trial were also impaneled for Hannah's. The same attorney general, Thomas Burford, presided over both cases. But what caused them to find Francis Sansbury a more reliable witness than Ruth Hutchinson? Perhaps it was, the, it was as the language implied and that Sansbury had a visible injury to show the jury while Hutchinson did not. Perhaps it was because Rebecca was a former indentured servant while Hannah's late husband had been a member of the gentry. Perhaps it was the fact that Rebecca was accused by a man while Hannah was accused by a woman. There's no way to know. The last witchcraft trial held in the province of Maryland probably came as a bit of a surprise to most people. The news of the hysteria and resulting executions in Salem in 1695 had spread and most believed that those who died were innocent. This was especially true of the educated upper classes and in Maryland, unlike the more democratic Puritan colonies to the north, the upper class and landed gentry controlled the courts completely. Perhaps this is why there was never a hysterical witch hunt in Maryland. As a palatinate with no town meetings or democratic traditions, Maryland's government was not as vulnerable to being whipped into a frenzy by zeitgeist. Still, in 1712, Virtue Vial of Talbot County was brought across the Chesapeake Bay to Annapolis to answer the charge of witchcraft. The indictment reads as follows. Virtue Vial, spinster of Talbot County, the fear of God being not before her eyes, but being seduced by the devil most wickedly and diabolically, did use evil practice and exercise witchcraft, wherefore she did waste, consume, and pine the body of a certain Eleanor Moore, spinster also of Talbot County. And with her most wicked tongue, did render lame and speechless the tongue of said Eleanor Moore. The record goes on to state that Virtue declared herself not guilty and threw herself upon the mercy of God and Her Majesty's chosen representatives. Her Majesty would be Queen Anne at this point, by the way. The verdict follows as such. The jurors being duly elected, tried, and sworn brought Virtue Vial to the bar and in the name of our sovereign Lady the Queen do according to the evidence and oaths say that Virtue Vial is not guilty of the matter for which she stands indicted and that she should go freely therefore without delay. Given the attitude towards witchcraft after the turn of the 18th century, it's no surprise that the jurors would dismiss out of hand the claims of the accuser that Virtue had managed to take away her power of speech. After all, one would think if Virtue held that power, wouldn't she have used it to just stop Eleanor from testifying in the first place? It was only 23 years later that the Witch Act of 1735 reclassified witchcraft as fraud rather than a capital offense. And anyone convicted faced a fine rather than an execution. So although the period of legally persecuting witches in Maryland was over, superstitions and vigilante justice sometimes carried on. 
as we can see in another story of a famous witch, Maul Dyer. For many years, Maul lived in St. Mary's County in a hovel about three miles from Leonardtown in the woods near what is now Route 5. Maul was the subject of considerable speculation among her neighbors. Some said that she'd been a lady of quality in England or Ireland, and although she was normally dressed in rags, she occasionally displayed an embroidered kerchief or a faded piece of lace that seemed above her station. She was tall, slender, and of commanding appearance, and she rarely deigned to speak to anyone. It was generally surmised that some great sorrow had driven her across the sea to settle in St. Mary's, filled with hatred for all of mankind. In winter, Maul stayed in her hut, but in milder seasons, she roamed the countryside, gathering simples for her incantations. She lived on the alms of her neighbors, who feared that if they refused her, she would put a curse on them. Indeed, there are still people in St. Mary's County today who will tell you, once you've gained their confidence, that their ancestors were victims of her spells. Maul's name was used to frighten children into obedience, and it was considered bad luck to meet her in certain places. A man's horse was said to have fallen dead beneath him while crossing her stream at midnight. Every misfortune that struck the area was laid at her feet. Storm damage, crop failures, illnesses, injuries, even death. Finally, one winter, a plague raged through the county, taking many lives, and Maul's neighbors decided they'd had enough. On a bitter cold night in February, the coldest of that winter, a mob of people descended on Maul's shack and put their torches to it. She must have heard them coming, or else, as some insisted, some evil spirits warned her, for the witch had already fled deeper into the woods. Nothing was heard of her for several days until a boy hunting for his cattle found her kneeling on a stone with one hand raised as if in prayer. The life had gone out of her, and she still rested in her suppliant position, frozen stiff. The story runs that she offered a prayer to be avenged on her persecutors and that a curse be put on them and their lands. Centuries have passed till then, but the stream nearby the hut is known to this day as Maul Dyer's Run, and the stone she knelt upon bears a clear impression of her knees and hand. Many people say the ghost of Maul Dyer can be seen every year on the coldest night of winter, making her way from her place on the run where her hut once stood to the stone, kneeling in the same attitudes as on that fateful night. There are those who think her prayer must have been heard. The land for several miles around the location of the hut is to this day desolate and unproductive. The stone is now located outside St. Mary's Historical Society in Leonardtown. Many who visit the Historical Society kneel on the stone and touch it, and many speak of feeling the bitter cold of that night that Maldire died. So my last story for you today comes to us courtesy of Madeline Dahlgren. In 1876, after the death of her husband, Mrs. Dahlgren purchased what was then called the South Mountain House, now the Old South Mountain Inn in Boonesboro in Washington County. Mrs. Dahlgren was not only a pillar of Washington, D.C. society, she was a successful author and amateur folklorist. While living in South Mountain House, Mrs. Dahlgren became fascinated with the stories and lore of the residents of the mountains and collected them in the book, South Mountain Magic, which was published in 1882. In particular, she recorded the story of a witch who tormented her neighbors for years, known only as Granny H. The story goes that Sally, a young girl who lived on the hills between South Mountain House and Myersville, took a fancy in her foolish head that it would be great fun to be a witch. 
So she went to Granny H and said, Granny, I've come to have you make me a witch. And Granny answered, now, Sally, do you really want to be a witch? Yes, Granny, I for sure and certain I do. Well, then you must wait until Friday. And when you get up, don't wash your face or comb your hair and come to me by high noon. And I promise you, you shall meet the old gentleman. Sally did as Granny H told her and arrived unwashed and unkempt at precisely high noon. Soon a little old man came in and at once accosted the young girl. So you want to have a trade with me, eh? Then sit down on the floor, put one hand on top of your head and the other on the soles of your feet and say, all that is between my two hands belongs to the devil. The girl did as she has bid and said, all that is between my two hands belongs to God. At this, the old man gave a howl like the bark of a dog and vanished, filling the room with noxious smoke. It said, the same wicked old woman delighted in casting spells over the cows of her neighbors. One farmer had nine cows, but once the witch had cast her spell, not a bucket of milk could be gotten between them. All would seem well at the time of the milking, but when the crocks were set away and the time came for churning, blood would be found in the bottom of each bucket. It was also considered very dangerous to make Granny H angry, so although she was hated, she was feared more and generally got whatever she asked for. One day, the witch stopped at a farmhouse and demanded a drink of their fresh cream. The woman of the house told her to go away, that they had no cream to give her, but this was a lie. In the spring house, there stood two big crocks of cream ready for the churning. The spring house was a nice cool place built of stone with windows well guarded against flies with wire mesh and a strong door that was kept locked. The next morning, the spring house was found to be full of flies and a dead pig laying in the puddle of the cream, though no one had opened the door. This was bad enough, but even more disturbing, there were not and never had been any pigs ever kept on this farm or any others nearby. So how did it get there? Who had opened the door? Where the, had the pig even come from? It finally came about that the witch was killed by a witch conjurer. Mrs. Dahlgren's informant claimed that the one who finally put an end to Granny H was her own aunt. Her grandfather, she claimed, taught his son's wife the ways of witch conjuring and said, Granny H is causing too much harm. She must be stopped. She declared she would put an end to her the next time there was any mischief done. Not long after that, the witch conjurer, known as Aunt Kitty, went out to milk the family cows. The milk came from the cows already curdled and mixed with blood. She milked them all dry as fast as she could and then filled up a hog trough with the ruined milk. She threw into the milk red hot stones and filled up the trough with briars and thorns. All the time she was doing this, she said the words and called on the three highest names. The next day, the witch was found dead in her bed, all bruised and burned from the hot stones and cut by briars and thorns, though none could be seen in the room. Now, how did your aunt do that? Mrs. Dahlgren asked the woman. Well, you see, when you can get the milk they have bewitched, you can turn their spells back on them and kill them. And as for the words Aunt Kitty used, the informant claimed she could not tell Mrs. Dahlgren that, because no woman may tell a woman, and no man may tell a man. And that is the witch conjurer's rule. I hope you enjoyed the stories, and thank you so much for inviting me on. Oh my goodness, it seems to be the same story in a little bit, doesn't it? Some, mm -hmm. some lady is being accused. 
Yep. But what catches me so much is the flowery language. Very flowery, almost like um, I'm like, okay, what's your what are you getting at? <laughs> um, I think it was that done so that they would have like the most space to rather than coming out and saying she did X, Y, Z, but instead she caused lameness to my body. That way it couldn't be. Yeah. So in the, when they were making an official um, accusation, they had to say exactly what the person was supposed to have done by magic or evil or spirits or curses that they should, uh, they should deserve to be punished. There had to be some provable or tangible uh consequence you know gathering all these stories uh this this dark side of Marilyn series tell tell me a little bit about how um uh patrons across Maryland can learn more about these stories where, where can they go and what can they do yeah so we have lots of the information in the Maryland department and you're always welcome to give us a call we'll set we can um, or email us or come visit us and we can photocopy or scan anything for you. Also, um, we do public programs all around the state. Um, so if you let your local library know that you want to see one of our programs, uh, not just this one, but something about uh, Poe communicating from beyond the grave or the birth of the Ouija board or true crime in Maryland, uh, all kinds of stuff, you can definitely get in touch with us. And we have lots of other stuff too. If you go to uh, prattlibrary.org and then choose the Maryland department or SLRC or slurk.info, all of our public programs are available there. And there's a huge variety, not just uh, not just spooky, creepy stuff, but also really fun stuff. Oh, that is so cool. And um, now the Maryland department is run out of the State Library Resource Center, everyone. Mm -hmm. The State Library Resource Center is part of Enoch Pratt, and uh, luckily they are our next door neighbors right here mm -hmm. in Baltimore. Yep. So if you're coming to visit us at the Library for the Blind and Print Disabled, or you're visiting the Maryland State Library Agency, pop on over to the Maryland State Library Resource Center. My last question before I let you go mm -hmm. is, what is your favorite story that you have found even if you don't, can't tell us the story, what is your favorite story? My favorite story is actually one I did get to kind of tell you tonight. And that was, that was Catherine, who was fined for her saucy language, uh, Catherine Prout. I feel like that would have been me. If you'd hauled me into court saying she's a witch, I would have been cursing up a storm. So, <laughs> but I figure small price to pay. <laughs> I, I think many people today, um, you know, a, and it's it's kind of funny because uh, we recently had another individual come in and give us some more Maryland history, spooky story type things. Mm -hmm. And I, I wonder, it makes me wonder, are there uh, accusations of witchcraft today? And if so, can they be can they be um, brought up in a court of law? Like, um, I don't know about today, but I do know that in the 1800s, there were many spirit mediums and spiritualists and magicians who claimed to be able to speak to the dead and perform spells and things like that. And uh, a few of them were actually uh, charged with what amounted to fraud and held responsible, but even more were not. Um, yeah. My colleague, one of my colleagues has a program about that. 
uh, community. And there's also stories, um, especially in like the Baltimore Sun in like the early 1900s, where people go to the police and make complaints against witches and witch doctors and people who are cursing them. And the police just kind of shrug and say, well, don't go near that person, I guess. <laughs> so it, it kind of goes from being this uh, horrible thing that you can be put to death for to people just kind of rolling their eyes at you like, uh-huh, sure. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being here and thank you. Um, so I'm going to, one, thank Amanda profusely because she did this on, on short notice. So thank you so much. And then yeah. also thank you for Enoch Pratt and um, State Library Resource Center, Maryland Department for sponsoring today's program. Thank you very, very much. Thank you, had a great time. This has been a presentation of the Maryland State Library Agency. For links to additional resources provided by today's presenter, please visit the show notes. For more information on MSLA or the Maryland State Library for the Blind and Print Disabled, visit MarylandLibraries.org.